0: It's one of the toughest names in the Bible to pronounce, Habakkuk. He wrote a sobering book, just three chapters long. It's tucked away deep into the Old Testament, but just who was Habakkuk? What insights does he offer us today? Well, that's our conversation in just a few minutes. Welcome to The Land and the Book, the program that makes you feel like you're actually in the Holy Land. I'm John Geiger, and our host for this weekly adventure is Dr. Charlie Dyer. How you doing,
1: Charlie? Now with a couple of weeks to think about your back-to-back Israel trips. Yeah, John, I'm back on the time zone here in the States, so I'm feeling pretty good, thanks. Good. Well,
0: before we get into our look at current events, uh, many people wonder, what's the next event on God's
1: prophetic timeline. Why is it important and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life in Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this very issue. The Rapture: Paul's Hope and Comfort is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free ebook is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about life in Messiah's 135 year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people.
0: Well, decorate the cake and break out the candles. This coming week, Israel celebrates its 75th anniversary as a nation. But with all the problems facing the country, what does Israel's future really look like at this milestone, Charlie?
1: Let's start with the good news first, John. Israel's Independence Day begins the evening of Tuesday, April 25, and extends into Wednesday, the 26th. Now, on our calendars, Israel declared its independence as a nation on May 14, 1948. But that date on the Jewish calendar, the fifth day of the month, E.R., moves around on our calendar, and that's why it begins this year, the evening of April 25. Now, the day before their Independence Day is Yom HaZikron, Israel's Memorial Day. This is when Israel remembers its fallen soldiers as well as those civilians who've been victims of terrorism. And that's also a significant holiday. And it follows last week's Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Seventy-five years as a nation is a major milestone, and there will be plenty of aerial flyovers and fireworks all across the country. But the celebration is clouded this year because of a number of significant issues. Those opposed to the coalition's plans for judicial reform continue to hold weekly protests around the country, hoping to create insurmountable problems to bring down the government. And this internal dissent is emboldening Iran and its allies. Iran's leader spoke virtually to the people of Gaza at a pro-Palestinian rally on the final day of Ramadan, urging them to press on with their struggle against Israel. Iran has been helping Hamas establish bases in Lebanon, alongside Hezbollah, to be used against Israel in future conflicts. Iran's Quds Force actually coordinated the recent rocket barrages against Israel from both Gaza and Lebanon. Iran's also supporting Hamas in its efforts to gain control over the West Bank and wrest that control from Palestinian Authority President Abbas and his government. Saudi Arabia just restored diplomatic ties with both Iran and Hamas, two longtime enemies. This appears to be a strategic decision on the part of the Saudis, to reject the Abraham Accords with Israel and move instead toward closer contact with Sunni and Shiite militants. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran are also working to end the conflict in Yemen. Now that could free up the Houthi forces there to launch rockets and drones toward Israel rather than Saudi Arabia. Uh, In short, Israel could be facing this next year uh, with missile threats from Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, and Yemen, with Iran pulling the strings, hoping to stretch Israel's forces as thin as possible. America's decision to pivot away from leadership in the Middle East to confront China is also making Israel feel vulnerable They're trying to get U.S. support for a possible strike against Iran's nuclear facilities But apart from a few token gestures, the U.S. seems unwilling to risk any military involvement So Israel's heading into this new year on the 75th anniversary facing a host of internal and external threats Now thankfully, we know how the story ends But this next year could test Israel's resolve and require its leaders to make some very strategic but difficult decisions. The country and its leaders, John, really are going to need our prayers. Charlie,
0: what's a likely scenario if Abbas and the PLO do lose control of the West Bank? I mean, Abbas won't live forever, uh, but maybe someone rises up in his place and still somehow they lose uh, control. What's a likely scenario? Uh,
1: At that point, I believe Israel would invade the West Bank and retake control. They were able to let Gaza go reluctantly because it's encapsulated. But the West Bank extends, you know, the border is so incredible. It gets within six miles of their international airport. They can't have terrorists that close with missiles that they could smuggle in. So Israel won't allow that to happen.
0: Story number two, Israeli President Herzog continues to hold meetings to try to iron out the country's judicial impasse. Are the sides making any progress or does this controversy threaten to split the country right down the middle?
1: Well, the debate over judicial reform does threaten to split the country politically. And the sad part is that some parties within Israel are trying to score political points rather than take part in the hard discussions that are needed. When President Herzog called together coalition and opposition forces to hold meetings to resolve the impasse, some parties refused to join. One was the Labor Party. They eventually decided to participate, but then last weekend, they suddenly quit the talk, saying they saw no point in continuing because of, quote, backroom deals being made without their involvement. The Israel Betenu party also refused to participate in the discussions and have instead been criticizing them from the outside. Now, it's possible the negotiations are going to end in failure, but at the same time, It seems as if the current coalition partners, along with Yeshatid and National Unity, are trying to find a possible compromise that could satisfy most people. Uh, Beginning this past Monday, the representatives began to deal with the core issues in the conflict. Uh, Rumors of a potential compromise have been floated by some news organizations, but it's unclear if they're real or just trial balloons being floated by the different sides. What is clear right now is that Israel needs to find a way to come together to resolve the issue. All the parties need to put politics behind them and work for the common good of the country. And very possibly, they need to consider forming a unity government that could deal with some of the economic problems and the external threats they're now facing. Now, it's hard for politicians to put aside personal egos, but that's what it's going to take. Hmm. President Herzog's demonstrating what a true statesman looks like in difficult times. And let's hope the heads of the various parties follow his lead. News stories from the Middle East that
0: you need to know about. That's what we're covering here on this opening segment of The Land and the Book. This coming week also marks the gathering of the Druze at the Horns of Hatim for their annual religious festival and pilgrimage. What do we know about this event?
1: Yeah, well, we know, and I'll, I'll start with the background. The Druze are an offshoot of the Shiite branch of Islam, and their religious beliefs mix Islam with Greek philosophy, along with some practices from Hinduism. There are about a million Druze in the Middle East, Most are in Syria and Lebanon, but about 100,000 live in Israel, and they're very supportive of the Israeli government. Uh, The Druze in Israel gather at the supposed tomb of the prophet Shohaib, whom they associate with Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. Now, there are records of the Druze gathering at this spot as early as the 1100s, nearly 1,000 years ago. Hmm. Near the supposed tomb is a rock that they believe bears Jethro's footprint the four-day holiday which begins on april 25 is when they gather at the site to discuss community matters it's also when other israeli dignitaries come and pay their respects to the Druze community think of this john as a combined religious gathering extended family reunion and community-wide business meeting Uh, visitors to israel usually associate the horns of a team with the battle on july 4 1187 when saladin and his arab forces defeated the crusaders in a pivotal battle but this coming week, it takes on more of a festive atmosphere as Drew's men and women in their distinctive clothing, with the men also sporting those distinctive mustaches, gathering to affirm their community.
0: Story number four. We're going to end with one here to delight all the uh, chocoholics listening to the program. That would include your wife, Kathy, Charlie, I think. Could Israel become a surprise cocoa superpower? One Israeli agri-food startup believes it can. I am really intrigued. Tell us about this
1: latest wild idea
0: from Amazing Israel.
1: Uh, This is a story of a company really seeking to do the impossible. Cocoa beans have never been cultivated in Israel because the plants need humid, tropical weather. All things Israel is not. Uh, But Israeli startup Celeste Bio believes it can make Israel a cocoa superpower using conventional cell culture methods to produce high-quality cocoa in a laboratory. By determining the optimal growth conditions for different cocoa plants, they intend to produce cocoa indoors without resorting to any genetic modifications. Now, one downside to cocoa production has been the exploitation of child labor, especially illegal child labor. But By applying a high-tech approach, they believe they can produce cocoa using ethical and sustainable methods while paying workers a living wage. They're also looking for ways to solve problems in the cocoa food production chain that add to the cost. For example, they believe they can produce cocoa closer to manufacturing facilities to lower the carbon footprint from transportation. And they plan to produce cocoa in the Negev Desert, where they can access solar power to cut production costs. Israel's good at solving problems, and Celeste Bio is applying that problem-solving approach to the production of cocoa. And that's why the third largest producer of snacks in the world has already expressed interest in their approach. Now, Applying high-tech methods to produce chocolate in an ethical, sustainable, and affordable way, that's definitely what we've come to expect from amazing Israel. And John, you're right. I think if they need volunteers for taste testing, <laughs> Kathy will be first in line, and I'll be right behind her. <laughs> Thank
0: you, Charlie, for that look at current events. Well, coming up, a conversation about Habakkuk. Just who was he? What does he have to say to us today? It's a full program today. Stick around for more here on The Land and the Book. It's one of the tougher names in the Bible to pronounce, Habakkuk. He wrote a sobering book, just three chapters long, kind of tucked away deep into the Old Testament. But just who was Habakkuk? What insights does he offer us today? Well, that's our conversation coming up. Hey, thanks for keeping our appointment today, joining us at The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and just before we step back in time, let's see how you and I can move forward in our efforts to share Jesus with a Jewish friend. Here's what I mean. So, you would like to have a conversation with your Jewish friend, and you'd like that conversation to be centered on Jesus and your Christian faith, but you're kind of nervous because they might just ask a question that you cannot answer. What then? Greg Savitt, what
2: do you say? Well, by your faith in Jesus in the New Testament that has over 250 direct quotes and 880 allusions, you will know more about the Bible than they will. And if they ask a question, go to the Gospel of Google, look it up right there on your phone. And if you don't have an answer, I would go and research them and find them the next day and say, I found the answer that you were looking for. And then you can sit down and have a conversation. Jewish people respect you more if you say, I really don't know that. That's a great question. Hmm. As opposed to you just flying by the seat of your pants and giving them a, an answer that really you really don't know anything about. So it's okay to say, I don't understand, and to get back to them. Greg Sabbath
0: is with Rock of Israel and joins us with insights here on The Land and the Book. Taylor Turkington directs the training ministry known as Bible Equipping, where she also teaches and coaches Bible teachers. Previously, she led training ministries for the Gospel Coalition and Western Seminary. She lives in Portland, Oregon, with her family, where she enjoys growing tall flowers, drinking great tea, and paddling the rivers. I wonder where. Taylor has written the book, Trembling Faith, How a Distressed Prophet Helps Us Trust God in a Chaotic World. Thanks for connecting with us, Taylor.
3: Oh, I'm excited to be here with you, John.
0: Well, let's get to this guy, Habakkuk. Just who was he? What do we know about the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk?
3: Oh, yeah. You know, Habakkuk is in the middle of those minor prophets towards the end of our Bible. So sometimes we don't know a lot about him. But we do know that he probably lived during the time of King Jehoiakim, who was a not good king in the history of Israel. But he was actually, Jehoiakim was the son of King Josiah which is a king that maybe we've heard of a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, The king that came to the throne at age eight and actually led a revival, right? He found the book of the law as he calls the people to rebuild the temple. And so we think about Habakkuk probably grew up under this king who stood in front of everyone uh, after he read the book of Deuteronomy to the whole nation and says, follow the Lord with me. And Habakkuk saw this good leader, this good king, lead them towards the worship of God. It wasn't long after that that things turned south, that King Josiah died, and instead Egypt began to meddle in the politics of Judah, and we end up with evil King Jehoiakim, which is when Habakkuk was alive and prophesying.
0: Well, from a purely human standpoint, the book of Habakkuk, if I may, is a bit of a downer. I mean, we tend to shy away from negative messages, but what does that say about us as Christians, Taylor, when we, you know, shy away from these negative messages?
3: Yeah, you know what we think about it, that time under this not great ruler who was corrupt and like telling people to maybe they should worship things that give them a higher status rather than the true God. And talking about politicians who would do whatever it takes to get more power. We think about like we live in a corrupt time, too. We look around and we see leaders sometimes who do those same things. We live in a time when people would make decisions that would harm others, even if it makes sense their life easier. And so what Habakkuk is doing is that he's calling out to the Lord for help and he gives us a model to do that. He calls out and says, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to help? And it teaches us that we can lament like that too. We can stand with Habakkuk and say, God, when are you going to help? And the answer that God gives Habakkuk is the answer for us. But God tells Habakkuk that it's not going to get easier right away for him, but rather God is still working and that he has a way for Habakkuk. And the way through is to live by faith. Hmm.
0: On today's edition of The Land and the Book, our visit is with Taylor Turkington. Taylor has written the book, Trembling Faith, How a Distressed Prophet Helps Us Trust God in a Chaotic World. Why do you think it's so important for us to revisit the story of Habakkuk in our day, Taylor?
3: Yeah, because I think we look around and read the news or we look at our neighbors down the street and we see a broken world. And so we have to be able to know how to put into words the issues that we see around us as we speak to God. We need to know how to pray and how to live with hope. The last chapter of Habakkuk actually gives us a hint that maybe Habakkuk was someone who worked in the temple because he writes this song that's actually for everyone to sing. He writes like a corporate hymn. And it's about how we can ask God to work again today and how we can sing of God's power. And then we can remember that even if things are really hard for us, And even if we lose everything we see around us, we still have God and we can rejoice in him. The last couple of verses of Habakkuk are perhaps the most known as he speaks about losing the fruit of the field, losing the herds, losing everything that possibly would make his life stable, but he can still have joy in the God who saves him. And that's the same true for us.
0: It seems to me when most of us look at faith today, it's kind of a a fluffy, fun thing. Yes. Have faith that, that God will lead you to your next job. Have faith that he'll reveal whether you should marry Joe or not. Mm-hmm. But Habakkuk's life illustrates faith with a different set of colors, some darker hues. Yeah. What do you think Habakkuk might say to us about our rather narrow approach to faith?
3: Yeah, you know, I think sometimes we think about faith as a cliche word that's written on knickknacks, right, or embroidered on pillows, and mm-hmm. I think Habakkuk would think that's ridiculous. He's like, but would throw that pillow against the wall. Like That's not real faith, because Habakkuk's faith was gritty. It talks about him literally trembling in the book, that he is shaking from fear and from grief, and in our real lives, we have seasons like that, where we are scared, where things don't feel very stable, and he would say, real faith can tremble and still say, wow, I still trust in God. I see that this world doesn't always look right and just, but my God is still right and just. And one day he's going to make all things right. And so it pushes us into the space that sees a bigger picture, a picture of what God's doing in all of history and trusting what God will do in the end, when we finally get to see him face to face.
0: From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined today by Taylor Turkington, We're looking at the life and legacy of a guy that doesn't get very much of a spotlight in our world, Habakkuk. You know, as products of an affluent culture, largely at peace, it's tough to escape our own mindset where every package kind of needs a bow, every story needs a happy ending. But that wasn't the case for Habakkuk. So why do we persist in the myth of permanent happy endings?
3: Yes, I think we do do that. We think that everything is going to turn out right. And sometimes we think... That our prayers—the only way that God would work is if He would answer our prayers exactly how we want them, when we want them. But that's not how life works, and Habakkuk shows us in the Bible that that's not how God worked back then either. I think that the song of chapter three of Habakkuk is really the song for people whose prayers are not answered the way they wanted. That's mm-hmm. the way I've called it before, because so often that's going to be our life too. But we say, "Lan, we still trust God." Even though he's not answering our prayers exactly how we want, Mm -hmm. because he is still God and he's working in a bigger timeline than we can see.
0: How do you approach the story and message of Habakkuk in your book? What can readers expect when they pick this up?
3: Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, in Trembling Faith, the book that I wrote, we really talk through this whole journey of Habakkuk, beginning with lament and seeing this broken world, and then moving through the middle of Habakkuk's journey where he's recognizing that God is still just even when things around him aren't. And that God one day is going to hold this world accountable, that it's going to either be us standing before him or all of that will fall on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and we'll be forgiven. And that God is still working in the midst of it. He's still the God on the throne. Even that means that his own life needs to be lived in a just manner, caring about how he treats other people. And then it moves into this final series where Habakkuk realizes that life is going to be hard, that this, in the history there, the people of Judah are about to go into exile. They're going to go, Under the king of Babylon, and they're going to leave the land for a time. But even in that, that doesn't mean that God is going to abandon them. And so, recognizing that even in our lives, don't go the way we planned, God has not abandoned us, but He is still the good God who gives us strength, which is what Habakkuk says that He is the one who's given strength to His people in the past and gives us strength today because He's the God who works the same way He always has. He works for our salvation.
0: You know, it's one thing to read Habakkuk or read your book, Taylor, and say, wow, wasn't that wonderful? How Habakkuk trusted God even in the worst gloom and doom. The question, I think, is how do we get that same rock solid confidence in our God?
3: Yes, no, that's a great question. And I think that what's beautiful about the journey of Habakkuk is that it's not always about his feelings, how he feels about God, but sometimes he's angry in the book, and sometimes he's afraid, sometimes he's sad. And I think of what that's teaching us too, is that we can have these, these emotions and bring them to God, and we can have grief and bring it to God, that somehow Habakkuk shows us that this grief and wrestling can intermingle with joy and faith, that those things don't have to be exclusive of one another. And so even as we walk through this journey, we can have a vision that God is just and working, even if we don't understand, and that He is the one that actually gives us life. That's what He says in the middle of chapter 2, that the righteous will live by faith, that He gives life to His people of faith. And so even when we feel like things are really hard, it actually changes our perspective to see that we can feel that way and still know something different because of what we've seen God do in the past.
0: Hey, what's one thing you want people to come away from your own study with this book that you've shared with us?
3: Yeah, I would want them to know that the book of Habakkuk, the prophets in the middle of their Bible that often has a little more gold on the edges because they're a little less red, have application for us. And there is a God who loves us, the God who has saved us in Jesus Christ, who speaks there and reminds us that he is the one who gives us strength and is always working, even when things might seem dark or even when we might want to stick our heads in the sand because we watch the news and it feels a little overwhelming, that mm-hmm. God is still God and that he is for us, and that our job is to walk by faith, following him.
0: How are you personally different today because of the time that you spent with Habakkuk and his message? You know, a book like this doesn't happen overnight. You're wrestling. I, right. I suspect at a point you feel like you're living back in his day. So how would you say your own life is marked? How are you scarred from this study?
3: Yes. You know, John. it's actually been years of God using the book of Habakkuk in my life. If I drew a timeline of my life, whenever things got really hard, I'd put a little dot and say, when Taylor ended up in the book of Habakkuk, because I have been ending up there for years and years, decades, feeling like, man, things are really hard. But Habakkuk taught me to have words to be able to come to God and say, this is so hard. And to recognize that God welcomes me and that God is calling me to see who he is and his character, even when everything around me feels like a fog. Because when things are really hard, it's hard to think clearly. And there were times in my life when I was in the hospital and we weren't sure what was going to happen next and how my health was going to make it. There were other times when leaders were making decisions that felt very unfair and were changing my life, and I didn't have anything that I could do about it. There were other times when my job and ministry were spiraling, and I was like, this is just too hard. What are you doing, God? And it's in those times that this book has actually comforted me. Because I could see that this is a God who hears us, who welcomes me in, and then gives me this vision. It's as if he leads me up to this high mountain and says, okay, let me show you the bigger picture of where I'm going, where I'm taking the world and my character. Therefore, you can still trust me, Taylor.
0: You know, I want to circle back to this uh, issue of happy endings. We live in a world of, you know, feel-good, self-help books, of Hallmark movies with their warm, Mm -hmm. fuzzy endings. One more time, what is the biblical antidote for our addiction to happy endings that are really, quite frankly, never promised? I mean, what might Habakkuk tell us if he were part of this conversation, Taylor?
3: Yeah, I I think that Habakkuk would tell us very clearly that happy endings isn't always the way that God is working in our timeline. But we see in God's timeline, there is a happy ending, right? It's just not maybe in our lifetime. Habakkuk was living in a time when in his life, they were going to go into exile, into Babylon, but he believed in his book that God was doing something bigger. And that one day that he was working salvation for the world, we see in chapter three, he talks about he's the God of salvation and has that repeated phrase of salvation. And so you and I can see our lives and feel like this isn't a happy ending, And we say, oh, because one day God is going to make the world right again. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and it's going to be wiping all of the tears away from our eyes. And that is the real happy ending. And instead, today we walk by faith and we know that God is working and we follow him and we see that he is the one that's worth more than everything we can lose. I think that's the message of the end of Habakkuk. He's saying we can lose the things in our life, but we will never lose the God who saves us.
0: Wow, that is a great, great word of encouragement. Thank you, Taylor.
3: Thanks so much for having me, John.
0: Her book, Trembling Faith, How a Distressed Prophet Helps Us Trust God in a Chaotic World. There's a link to that at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, Charlie returns with a fresh stack of Bible questions, and I hope you'll stick around for that next on The Land and the Book. They say that asking questions is good for you. Is that true? I don't know. I'm John Geiger. I'm going to ask that very question of our host, Dr. Charlie
1: Dyer, who's been in education, has his doctorate, of course. Is asking questions good for you, Charlie? John, it's one of the greatest things people can do if they want to learn. Questions are the, uh, the motivation to yeah. find the answers that you need for life. Hmm. Well, that said, maybe you question
0: about uh, the next event on God's prophetic timeline. You wonder, and, and why is it important?
1: What does it mean for you? And that's why our friends at Life in Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. The Rapture: Paul's Hope and Comfort is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook You'll also be able to learn more there about life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. Well,
0: because Charlie has already established the fact that questions are good for you, they're a great way to learn, we're going to fire hose you. Well, we won't fire hose you. We'll just sprinkle you, maybe, with some great listener questions that have come in to us recently at The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Starting with Gordon's question, he wonders about the identity of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. Do they refer to Christian and Jewish believers or churches? Since Revelation 11 identifies them as the two olive trees and lampstands, which Revelation 2, 1 identifies as churches. Or could they be literal people, which some have suggested? Maybe Moses, Elijah, or Enoch. Charlie, my head is dizzy.
1: Yeah, and in terms of identifying the two witnesses there, I have to start by saying I don't believe that taking the account allegorically or symbolically you know with Israel and the church is the proper approach all the details in the chapter point to a literal fulfillment of those events and to literal people Uh, there'll be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem Uh, there's 42 months mentioned of Gentile domination and that parallels the 1260 days these two witnesses are said to prophesy uh, the reference to olive trees and lampstands is more likely going back to Zechariah 5, where similar imagery was used to refer to two specific individuals, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, who were accomplishing God's will in rebuilding the temple following the Babylonian captivity. Revelation uses the same imagery to describe two future men of God who will be serving the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, we're not given their identity in Revelation 11. However, the details that they perform there uh, making me suspect they might be Moses and Elijah. Now, I say that because they're said to shut up the sky so it doesn't rain, like Elijah did, and to turn water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague, like Moses did. Uh, it's interesting that Satan and Michael, the archangel, disputed over Moses's body following his death. Uh, Jude mentions that in Jude 9. And that Elijah was physically transported into heaven without dying in 2 Kings chapter 2. But now it's also possible Revelation 11 is describing future individuals who will come in the power of Moses and Elijah, even if they're not the actual individuals. The Old Testament ends in Malachi 4 with the prophet describing the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And in that chapter, he calls on the people to remember the law of my servant Moses and to watch for the coming of the prophet Elijah. Two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, who will point the people back to God's word and forward to God's return. So I believe if we take this passage literally rather than figuratively or symbolically, we're on far more solid interpretive ground. We still don't have all the answers, but it does allow Scripture to fit together rather than trying to force the puzzle pieces into the wrong holes. From the New Testament, we'll head back to the Old Testament.
0: In Larry's question, he says, After King Saul's death, David reigned over Judah seven years in Hebron. That's 2nd Samuel 5 verse 5 but 2nd Samuel 2 verse 10 says Ishbosheth reigned 2 years over Israel so who controlled Israel the other 5 years
1: yeah i, I love this because it's pointing out uh, details in the text that uh, raise questions uh, but i reconcile this one by noting the details given in 2nd Samuel 2 verses 8 to 10 with the death of Saul and the collapse of his kingdom I believe that Israel entered a time of chaos. The Philistines controlled the coastal area and the Jezreel Valley all the way to the east to Beit effectively cutting off the tribes in Galilee from the rest of the country. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, took Saul's remaining son, and then it says that he brought him over to Mahanaim in verse 8. Now, that's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. In essence, he was forming a government in exile in a place where the Philistines couldn't reach him. He then made him king over Gilead. Well, that's the area where Mahanaim located. It then says he expanded his control over the Asherites, possibly the tribal allotment of Asher, which is in Galilee, and which might include the other tribes up there. And he then started to claw back some of the land captured by the Philistines by taking Jezreel, either the city or the valley, since both have the same name and are in the same area. And then finally, it says he extended his control over Ephraim, the northern hill country, and Benjamin. The core land where Ishbosheth's family was from. Uh, anyway, rather than seeing Ishbosheth become king over all Israel immediately, I suspect this is written in a way that suggests it required an extended period of time, both through conquest and negotiation. Uh, if his reign over all the territory lasted two years, well, that suggests to me it might have taken four or five years to transition from being a fugitive across the Jordan to building back the kingdom to incorporating all the area that was ultimately under his control his two years of control over all Israel would then correspond to the final two years of David's control over Judah. Uh, The fact that verses 8 and 9 go into such geographical detail, that suggests to me there was a process of regaining territory over time. And the fact that his two years of rule must align with the final few years of David's seven years of rule over Judah from Hebron, well, that suggests to me that the process of Ishbosheth regaining it all, it took five years. It's Questions and Answers here on The Land
0: and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, intrigued as you are with all these questions that have come in. And by the way, yours is welcome anytime at at moody.edu. Toward the end of the New Testament we go, a question about 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17 from Richard. These verses are about sin leading to death. He says, I've been taught and always believed this was a spiritual death like Adam experienced, that is, separation from God. I've recently received some teaching that indicated that there is other sin that can lead to death, and I'm not sure which, physical or spiritual. Is there a sin, other than the rejection of Jesus, that will lead to either kind
1: of death? How do we understand these verses? These verses have been debated by Bible scholars for a long time. Uh, We know all sin is wrong, so the main question is determining how some sin leads to death while other sin apparently does not some have used this passage to divide sin into venal sins versus mortal sins, seeing mortal sins as those that lead to death, that they're graver sins like murder, rape, or adultery. But if John's telling us not to pray for an individual who's committed such a sin, then we have a problem when we look at the early life of the Apostle Paul, who actively persecuted the church, was in hearty agreement with the murder of Stephen, and was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, as it says in Acts 9.1. Obviously, his sin didn't lead to death, but... To an encounter with Jesus. Now, others associate the verses with the unpardonable sin mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 12. You know, the sin against the Holy Spirit uh, would be uh, the conscious rejection of Jesus's claims to be the Messiah and the Son of God, uh, even after they saw the Holy Spirit's visible support for the truth of those claims. And while it's true that an individual today can harden his heart to the point where he irreversibly rejects Jesus. Well, we don't know when that point is, so it's hard to imagine for us how we're not to pray for someone when we really don't know where their heart is. Uh, That leads me to think what the most reasonable interpretation might be. Uh, John begins the book by acknowledging we all sin. He says that in 1 John 1.10. And in chapter 5, he notes there are some sins that can result in physical death. Uh, By the way, I take the sin unto death to be referring to a sin that can lead to God taking a person's life. He did that to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, and Paul mentions that Uh, Some of the events going on in Corinth led to some being weak and sick and some having uh, fallen asleep, which was a euphemism for dying. So in this case, John is encouraging us to pray for individuals, but we have to acknowledge that God won't always answer those prayers because the actions of some individuals are such that God's going to judge them and uh, take their physical life away. It doesn't change their eternal destiny if they're followers of Jesus, but it does remind us that there are cases where God will take someone's life physically because of some sin they've done, And in those kind of cases, uh, whatever we pray won't make a difference.
0: Time for one last question from Nancy. How did Israel meet the sacrifice obligations given to Moses in the law? I'm thinking that fine wheat, olive oil, and doves or pigeons weren't available until they left the wilderness 40 years after that law was given. Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, well, we're not told exactly how that happened, but here are some suggestions. The animals like doves and pigeons, well, they could be found in the wild and Were very likely caught and used for sacrifices. Uh, There were also wild olive trees, and I suspect Israel could harvest and save oil from them for their own personal use and for use in the tabernacle. And since the nation didn't move around daily during the time in the wilderness, I suspect they could plant and harvest wheat and barley during those times when they were camped for extended periods uh, during the growing season. Now, they had manna to eat, so the grain planted would have mainly been used for tabernacle services. But once again, the Bible never tells us how they came by these items but uh, i think there's possible explanations and and frankly i commend you for reading through the bible uh, including those books uh, and coming up with those questions and we thank you for your questions
0: anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu charlie will look over your question and give you an answer in just a day or two his devotional is next here on moody radio's the land and the book thanks for sticking with us for this fourth segment on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer, and we've all been there. We've been to a prayer meeting where, quite honestly, you come to the end of it and you go, I wonder how effective that was. It just just didn't seem to have any focus. You've been there? I think you have. Charlie, I understand you're going down that road and you're devotional
1: in just a minute. Yeah, that's right, John. We're starting a three-part series on the Bible's most ineffective prayer meetings. Okay. And today we're heading into the wilderness. All right. I bet there'll be some great life lessons
0: for us along the way as well. Before we do that, though, let's do this. Listen to a Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who's been there to the Holy Land and wants to share this with you and me.
4: I was in Israel in 2006, my first time in that beautiful Holy Land. And um, one of the most memorable times for me was uh, when our tour went on the Sea of Galilee. And I thought of all the places that Jesus had been, I know that the Sea of Galilee was written in the Bible as where he was, and it is there today. So we're sitting on this boat, and the tour guide is speaking, and... Um, It was supposed to be about a 40-minute ride, and a big storm and winds came in, and it just brought us all back to that time when we considered Jesus calming the storm. So it was a beautiful memory of how Jesus was there and how he was with us today in our hearts.
0: I'm really intrigued by this uh, new devotional series, Ineffective Prayer Meetings. Charlie,
1: I'll get out of the way and turn things over to you. Thanks, John. And for everybody listening, I hope your water bottle is full and that you're wearing sunglasses and a broad-brimmed hat, because our destination today is the wilderness of Sinai. I'm starting a three-week series I've titled The Bible's Most Ineffective Prayer Meetings, and this week we're visiting the children of Israel as an ugly mob confronts Moses and Aaron we quickly spot the ringleaders of this rebellion. In the front stands Korah, the son of Kohath and the grandson of Levi. And next to him are Dathan and Aviram, or as we would normally say, Dathan and Abiram. And standing next to the two of them was On, Ben, Pellet. The last three are all from the tribe of Reuben. These four men, and apparently a large crowd of followers, have gathered to challenge the leadership of Moses and Aaron and they get right to the point in number sixteen three. You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why do you then set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Jealousy likely caused this outburst. Korah was a Levite, but his father's line hadn't been chosen to be the priests. He could help out in the tabernacle, but he had no hope of ever wearing the high priest's garments or fulfilling those duties. And those from the tribe of Reuben resented Moses being Israel's leader. After all, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. If anyone should be in charge, that person should come from the line of Reuben. And Moses was not from that line. As the grumbling continues, Moses points out the sinful motives behind Korah's complaints. It was God who brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. But now you're trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Moses then summoned Dathan and Abiram, but they refused to come out to meet directly with him. We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? And now you also want to lord it over us. In a horrible twisting of the truth, they now claimed Egypt was the land of milk and honey, and that Moses' real motives in leading the children of Israel into the wilderness was to kill them. And by the way, this is just two chapters after the children of Israel rebelled and refused to go into the promised land following the reports of the spies. They were the ones responsible for still being in the wilderness, not Moses. But wait a minute, I thought you said we were going to be looking at one of the Bible's most ineffective prayer meetings. So where's the prayer? (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Follow along closely as this tense situation unfolds. In addition to the four rebels mentioned by name, number 162 says there were also 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. Evidently, they were also here to complain about the spiritual and administrative leadership of Moses and Aaron. So now it's time to hold that prayer meeting and ask God to resolve this conflict. Beginning in verse 16, Moses speaks to Korah You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron, each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are also to present your censers. The burning incense represented the prayers that were to be offered before the Lord. In essence, all the leaders and would-be leaders were to gather before the Lord to offer up their prayers just as Aaron had been doing. They would then see how God would respond. Now, imagine the scene the next morning. Korah and his 250 leaders stood just outside the tabernacle next to Moses and Aaron, when suddenly the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. God warned Moses and Aaron to move away from all the rebels, Moses then ran to the tents of Dathan and Abiram and warned all the people, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. Moses then issues a challenge to all the people. This is how you'll know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And now it was time to see how God would answer the two sets of requests. And God chose to answer in a dramatic way. Moses had barely finished shouting his warning when a massive earthquake tore the ground open the earth opened up and swallowed the tents of Dathan and Abiram and their other followers, and then the ground closed back up. They were very literally swallowed alive by the earth. But God wasn't yet done. Their cries were still ringing in everyone's ears when fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense leaving behind the scorched censers amid the smoldering remains, it was quite obvious whose prayers God had accepted and whose prayers were rejected as offensive. Now, you would assume this is when everyone would recognize that God had indeed decided that Moses and Aaron were to be the leaders. But you would be wrong. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. In response, God sent a plague among the people. Moses called on Aaron to take his censer, put incense in it, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Aaron did so and stood between the living and the dead, waving the censer of incense as he interceded for the people. God spared the rest of the nation in response to Aaron's intercession, but 14,700 people died from the plague. So, What can we learn from this ineffective prayer meeting on the part of Korah and his followers? How about this? One man, Aaron, praying in sincere humility stopped a plague, while 250 individuals motivated by pride and jealousy discovered their prayers couldn't even save themselves. We live in a day when people are told to say, I demand my rights. But such an attitude doesn't work when approaching God. Psalm 1017 provides the key to effective prayer. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Or, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Thank
0: you, Charlie. Appreciate this first in your new series, Ineffective Prayer Meetings in Scripture. Hey, if it's been a while since you visited our website, lots of stuff there to check out at thelandandthebook.org. The podcast, of course, is something that we hear from a lot of people about, Charlie. I know anecdotally and also through the email, we definitely know that we're connecting
1: as uh, folks really appreciate that podcast. They really do, John. And I think it's because it allows them to hear the program a second time if they want, or if they missed it on the radio or they're not near a radio station, to be able to hear the program and uh, respond in their own time. Also at the website, in addition to a podcast that you'll find there, guest bios. Let's say
0: you want to learn a little bit more about today's guest. That's there. Information about our past programs and what's coming up, and books that Charlie and I have written, all at thelandandthebook.org. Our team is Dan Anderson at the controls, Charlie Dyer, our host. I'm John Gager, and we want to thank you for being a part of it, too. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Have a great day.